and welcome to In Mahabba Center's podcast, season two, episode seven of the month of August during quarantine. Today, we're going to continue the discussion about identities. So I wanted to kind of review what we were discussing two weeks ago um, about um, identities and why I was saying that I find it a little more interesting to discuss equity and equality when discussing identities, simply because I think the conversation around identities is always like, pick a category, race, gender, class, education, sexual orientation. And it's like this rainbow, I don't know, um, I did one activity once <laughs> at Vanderbilt and it was like um, when I was an undergrad. And it was like, write your name in the petals, write your little identities. It was so, so elementary. Um, so I didn't start the discussion there, of course. Um, I wanted to really elevate it because it's a lot more complicated than just, oh, you are Egyptian and a woman and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> um, yeah, and... I'm going to discuss categorizations a little bit later in like a couple of minutes. Um, so stick with me because I also have a problem with that. Um, but to review what we said two weeks ago was basically equality and the politics of equality and identity politics in general r usually revolve around this idea that everyone must be the same. This is a very popular notion in the US, I think, and in other countries, I think, as well. Um, the idea that everyone has the same needs um, or should have the same needs <laughs> um, and therefore the response to these needs should be the same. Um, and you can see why this is very problematic. Um, one, because we don't all have the same needs um, and two, um, that responding in the same way to every need can also, even if all needs were the same can also be very problematic um, and don't really um, provide the realistic service that we see. Um, and so I kind of urged us to look more towards equity, um, which sees less of sameness as being right and more of fairness. Um, so meeting people where they are. And I gave examples like the Samaritan woman, which is a very um, classic example, and St. Mary and St. Zechariah with the Archangel Gabriel. Um, so you can listen to that episode to hear more of the details, but I just wanted to say that because we're going to launch into um, another discussion of identities through the lens of intersectionality. And I want to say that this is a very important discussion for Coptic churches, I think, um, and for most people who are hoping to serve or do social, uh, social justice advocacy work. Um, well, let me erase the advocacy part. Social justice work. <laughs> I don't like advocacy. That's for another podcast. <laughs> um, and it's really important um, when we do our services, when we do our social justice work, um, that we approach our service in terms that we are not going to apply the same, you know, service to everyone. Everyone who approaches us, even if they are going to ask a question about health, unemployment, um, I'm discussing from a very in Mahabba stance, but health, unemployment, reopening of schools, etc., tutoring, etc. Um, everyone who approaches us is going to have a different need. 
Um, And it's very important that we approach people where they are. So you can see how important this idea of equity um, and seeing people's identities as differing um, can really better the service in the church. And that's why I wish we had more discussions about this, especially in pre-servants and servants meetings, um, particularly in the Orthodox churches, because it would help servants a lot, a lot to engage the people they serve um, in a way where they understand difference, right? And difference in identities and that your response to those differences needs to also be different. Um, It doesn't need to be individualized. Um, I mean, that would ideally be the best type of way to individualize your service, Um, but obviously it needs to be different. Um, So questions like what language should we pray the liturgy in? If we look at it in a framework of equity, right? So who are the people that you are serving? Who, what are their needs? Um, how can we fairly bring all of these people in? This question is very easy to answer. Um, it's not going to be a top-down, this is what we're going to do. But equity teaches us that to serve the people that we want to serve, we have to be able to recognize their differences and to operate on those differences. Um, so if it's only Arabic, it's only Arabic. If in a couple of years it's Arabic and English, it's Arabic and English. If in a couple of more years it's Arabic, English, Spanish, in a couple more years it's English, Arabic, and Spanish. Um, so that's one avenue that I feel like the language of equity works in. The other one um, is a very big issue in Nashville and I think in other um, dioceses as well um, and in other cultures as well um, is violence against women. Um, and the services we need to create to fix this situation. Um, I don't know what other word is here. Just make men not be violent. Um, (laughs) So the services that we need to create need to be framed in this frame, need to be framed um, with the idea that everyone is going to come in with a different situation, right? So you may have someone who, um, this is very, very um, common in Nashville. So we have folks who um, just came from Egypt um, and are in abusive relationships. Um, And because that person does not have their family network, is not able to leave um, that man, um, the husband that she is with. So this is where the church needs to step in and provide a family network for someone. In other families, we have um, women with extended families here in Nashville um, who are not able to take, you know, who are not able to leave the situation to protect themselves because it's seen as, um, uh, I don't know, like a shame. It's seen as a shame to leave your husband to get a divorce. So there are like, Um, many layers um, to this type of service um, so that we're not just approaching it as um, okay just go to the court and get a divorce but there may be median steps that we can take to resolve this median services that we can take um, to comfort the person who is the survivor um, whether that be 
um, the spouse or the kids um, to put them in a situation where they feel comfortable and we're not putting our own notions of okay, he's abusive, you need to leave him, when that may not be doable, depending on her family network, depending on her sense of community and culture, depending on her children, depending on her financial situation. Um, So creating services that um, meet the need (laughs) instead of dictating what the need is. Um, So this is where the conversation of equity and identities of class, gender, Um, education, culture are very important. So it becomes kind of a circular conversation um, because you start the conversation with talking about identities, race, gender, sexual orientation, etc. And then you're like, okay, well, we don't really want to talk about that because, okay, great. (laughs) Now what? You know, what are you going to do with identities? Um, so what if someone is black? <laughs> what are we going to do with that? So what if, you know, um, there's a woman who feels uncomfortable in a group of men? What are we going to do about that? So then we get into the conversation of equity and equality, um, of teaching people to meet people where they're at, um, to treat every situation differently, um, not to enforce your own sense <laughs> of ideals on other folks who are trying um you know, to live their life, (laughs) Um, that we shouldn't be enforcing our ideals on folks uh, just because we see the identity marker, right? So, oh, um, and this happens often, I feel like, especially with racism and sexism, um, is that we try to enforce, oh my gosh, that person was racist towards you, you should report that, where someone may not want to report it, or um, that man was sexist to you, you have to respond, you have to check him, or don't check him, it's just going to be a waste of your time. So dictating how people respond when we know people are different, (laughs) um, and that that may not meet their need. So then again, you start with identities, you go to equity and equality, understanding how to meet needs. And then you come back and you say, okay, so now I have kind of a theoretical bedding of like, this is how I need to engage folks, (laughs) understanding that identities are different, um, understanding that people have multiple identities, um, understanding that people's identities being multiple may come out at different times and that I as a servant um, need to be able to understand that, right? So someone who um, is a cisgender male, so someone who is presenting as a male, but he's gay, uh, may not feel comfortable walking into a church. And you may say, well, I mean, the Coptic church is patriarchal, so he should feel comfortable, right? If he's male presenting, why is that an issue for him if he's a cisgender male? Um, But the issue may be that he walked into church one day and people were saying a lot of homophobic things. Um, Again, very common. Um, And he didn't feel comfortable, and so he left um, the church. Um, So being able to see that people have multiple identities Um, And these multiple identities um, come out at different times. Um, So that same man could also participate in sexist language as well. Um, So whereas he may not feel comfortable in a church that uses a lot of homophobic language, um, he may go to work and um, participate in sexist language um, towards a a co-worker who is a woman, etc. So this helps us see that we all (laughs) participate 
um, in language and in actions that may not benefit each of us. And that's why it's important to understand identities and how we make people uncomfortable. Um, And it's also important to understand difference, right? So someone, again, may have an identity that is forward in the church that takes a background at work where that identity may feel more comfortable. Um, And of course, this then has implications for, okay, so everyone is different. Um, So I have to treat, we, we get to an extreme where we see everybody as completely different from each other. And this is where intersectionality comes in, Um, because intersectionality, as the word kind of implies, sees, you know, cross sections, um, sees, I I, want to say intersections, (laughs) but I know using the word to define the word is really annoying, but uh, it sees the intersections of identities, right? And that... Whereas we are differing, we are not completely different from each other. Um, And this is where the solidarity work begins. So I like to pair these two ideas, um, equity and equality versus intersectionality, because they feed into each other. Equity teaches us that we are differing um, and intersectionality teaches us a little bit of our sameness or I don't like the word same so I'm going to use solidarity where we can find um, a pattern of and where we can take that pattern to be a solidarity um so instead of just keeping the conversation at identities we are Egyptian you know like moving it a little bit further before I discuss what intersectionality is um just two things. I will not be using Bible verses um, or Bible or scripture um, this podcast episode because I used a lot um, two weeks ago to discuss this. Um, So I encourage you all to go listen to the last podcast episode um, with those um, scriptural um, references. The other thing that I want to say is that even though I'm going to be talking a lot about categories, um, so categories of race, gender, class, education, um, et cetera, et cetera, um, I don't want those categories um, (laughs) to turn into either hierarchies or stereotypes. Um, So just to say, like... um, saying like there are lbgtqi folks who go to church um they hear homophobic things and they still go to church or transphobic things and they still go to church um so we don't want to stereotype and say um you know lbgtqi people don't feel comfortable in church um well i think we can say in general they don't feel comfortable in church but um we shouldn't say that they don't go to church or they're not present in our communities Um, so that's very important. So even though we are categorizing people and we're speaking in generalizations, um, those generalizations and categorizations should not equal stereotypes of like, oh, I wouldn't expect to see you here in our community. Um, yeah, (laughs) let's not go there. Um, and we don't want to get there because again, we want to see people as differing, um, but not in completely the same way um so just please be aware of that that categories don't mean stereotypes so i'm not boxing people into categories of saying this is a black person or this is a coptic person right like coptic people are homophobic that's not 
um, where I'm going with this. I'm speaking in generalizations, not stereotypes. And the other thing is that when we speak about categories, it's very common that people then take hierarchies. This is very common in white liberal spaces. Um, You know how many times I've seen this like, you know, number one through five, um, your race and like the higher the number is or the lower the number is it doesn't matter but like for instance the higher the number is the more oppressed you are have you seen those those are like um very weird and very uncomfortable like you just go down the chart and you're like oh i am not white so i get a five um i'm a woman so i get a five. Oh, my oppression number is i don't know 56 yay <laughs> like i am the most oppressed Um, That's not what categories do. Um, There's no hierarchy of like white man at the top, then there's a white woman under, and then underneath that, it's a black man, underneath that, black woman, underneath that, black woman, LBGTQI. Like we're not, we're not sitting on a ladder putting people's identities (laughs) on like this hierarchy of like oppression. That's not that no that's not what we're doing um because that's not again realistically how identities present themselves we all have identities um that come out and present us with a level of privilege right and then some that don't um i will say that there are people who have a lot more identities for instance a white male who you know a white heterosexual christian male um protestant male may have a lot more identities that present with privilege um but i don't want us to think in hierarchies because then it becomes this awful awful discussion of who's more oppressed and it's just unnecessary it's distracting it's really like sorry but who cares who's the most oppressed when we are all at the bottom here Um, And it also feeds into the colonial idea of divide and conquer, right? So people are more obsessed with, what is my oppression? I am more oppressed than you. Instead of saying, hey, I sympathize with you. I see you. I see that pain. And I have that pain too, or a differing pain um, that we can work off of. Um, So yeah, I don't like thinking (laughs) in hierarchies. Um, Again, this is a very white liberal Um, give me your oppression number, like ridiculousness. Um, And it's part of this colonial mindset of, again, divide and conquer, divide and conquer, Um, trying to find always ways to pit groups against each other instead of looking and saying, oh, here's the person who's oppressing us. (laughs) Um, So anyways, that's really important. Um, So I'll be speaking about a lot of categories today, um, because that's unfortunately how identity politics right now is being shaped um is through categories um but i don't want those categories to become stereotypes or hierarchies so what is intersectionality i also want to say right now that intersectionality is not diversity so a lot of people discuss intersectionality like i have diverse identities that's not what that is um intersectionality is a very It's very complicated. I don't think I'm going to be able to describe it very well, um, but I'm going to give y'all reading (laughs) um, that y'all can research. And of course, if you even Google intersectionality, um, there are a lot of good articles to read from that summarize uh, Kimberly Crenshaw's um, writings and theories about this. Um, 
but I will kind of begin. It's very complicated, but I will kind of begin to digest it for all of us. Um, But intersectionality is not diversity. Intersectionality is not the notion that we are all different from each other. Um, That's diversity. Um, And again, diversity, we have a podcast episode about this, about how watered down of an idea it is, um, because it just reinstates this idea of difference, difference, difference without doing anything, right? Um, And actually, I argue in the diversity podcast episode that diversity politics in the US actually creates sameness um, in workspaces and academia, etc., Anyways, so intersectionality is not diversity. Intersectionality is really um, a framework to understand one difference and then two discrimination um, and how that works. Right. So it's more of it's it's really a theory um, and it has multiple kind of bullets (laughs) under it um, because it's very complex. Right. And it basically, you know, it's it really speaks to the idea of like i think of intersectionally as intersectionality as a like a wedge of like when two or more of your identities um like conflict with one another um i'm going to discuss that i don't think conflict is the right word here but let's keep talking about it um so in the 1980s Kimberly Crenshaw, this amazing scholar of race, um, coined the word intersectionality. And she coined the word on the basis of a court case she was watching or like witnessing, uh, following up on. And let me tell you all about this court case. Um, This black woman applied for a job um, at this Uh, car shop that had mechanics and secretaries she was denied um a position employment at this place and she sued them because she believed that she was being discriminated against and her argument was that she was uh, she couldn't become a mechanic even though most of their mechanics were black like her because she was a woman And again, notice this is like 1980s, 70s, right? Um, So she couldn't become a mechanic even though she was black because she was a woman. And she couldn't become um, a secretary uh, because even though they were all women like her, (laughs) um, she was black. So in other words, there was a conflict here. So even though she had sameness, right? So like the mechanic, she was black. Like the secretary, she was a woman. She also wasn't like them. So she wasn't like the mechanics because she was a woman. She wasn't like the secretaries because she was black. And there were certain prejudices and racisms and sexisms against women being mechanics, against black folk being secretaries, being like the face of an organization. And from here, Crenshaw coins this term intersectionality to describe this dilemma because I think this black woman actually ended up losing the court case um, because the judge couldn't see that she was being discriminated against on both sides right because she was a black woman those two identities intersecting it took her back from both opportunities Um, so Kimberly Crenshaw then coined this term intersectionality 
Um, and she writes a lot about this. Um, and remember, but this is the era when there's a lot of feminist theories coming out, um, particularly about domestic violence um, and male violence in general. Um, so a lot of feminist theories coming up and guess who's excluded from, you know, this idea that, you know, they, they are women too, and that they deserve to be voices in this, um, clearly black women. (laughs) So it was very feminist theory in the seventies and eighties. And I think even today, I think you could say that is a very white enterprise where a lot of these white women, Um, are discussing feminism in terms of their own experiences, right? And they are excluding many Black voices into this. So Kimberly Crenshaw's writing in this era. So if you ever read any of her writings, um, this is like a very fundamental theory of hers, is that you have Black women who are excluded from white feminism, and then you have Black women who are excluded from race, critical race theory. Um, So for instance, if I asked you, if I asked myself even, in the 1960s, can you name any prominent um, Black women who aided in the civil rights movement besides rosa parks okay besides rosa parks okay um most of us could not name another woman even though women were like the backbone um of the civil rights movement right who was cleaning up after all these rallies who was organizing the bus routes for selma who um was organizing the protests who was getting people out of jail who was in jail um who was writing the speeches who um was listening to the speeches right who was uh, speaking about these who was creating conversations around the speeches so um i do want to say that we often (laughs) do not credit the people who clean up and organize things um right those like secretarial jobs um because most of the people who organize and clean up (laughs) after events are women um so we see that as like mishmash we only care about the people who give speeches or who are in jail um which again very male predominant um and we exalt men who give speeches and men who protest and go to jail but like women who clean up or take care of the kids while the people are in jail um they're kind of seen as doing a duty um and the men are seen as doing the extra mile for the movement so i do also want to break up that idea because it's just extremely rude and most of the women Um, I personally have never been to an event, (laughs) a successful event, um, that has, you know, that doesn't have a group of women backing it, um, that organized it. They may not be speakers at the event, um, they may completely be in the background cleaning up, organizing, um, but they are fundamental to how that event, um, came about. Sorry for that tangent. I felt like that needed to be said um, because I think it's a very um, feminist theory always is like, oh, we need more women talking. We need more women, you know, protesting. And that's great. I'm all for that. But let's also recognize that it's also a type of protest to plan an event, um, clean up after the event, take care of the kids during an event, um, cook for the event. Um, So God bless the tons. Like that's also a move of resistance. You don't have to be getting up and saying a speech to be someone who's resisting. Anyways, um, so coming back to Kimberly Crenshaw and intersectionality, um, this idea that because of these multiple identities, these intersecting multiple identities, 
there can be conflicts, right? Um, so there, there can be differences that are made, right? So outcasting that can be made. Um, and what's really interesting about this um, is that Kimberly Crenshaw, in her article, Mapping the Margins, um, she makes the argument that actually these conflicts, right, uh, they don't create the difference that we assume that it does, but instead intersectionality helps us see and understand the sameness of our conditions. So even though our identities may not be the same, um, a black woman versus an Egyptian woman, um, we can see the sameness in our condition. Um, the condition that Kimberly Crenshaw is very, 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 very attached to is domestic violence. Um, because it's something that we see across patriarchal societies um, is how much, how common domestic violence is. So, of course, she's speaking to the black communities in the U.S. Um, about domestic violence. Um, and she discusses this in a framework of intersectionality. Um, so how can we look at domestic violence and see the problem of being black and a woman, um, and also someone who is abused. Um, One, uh, because you're wedged in between your womanness or womanhood, um, and also your your blackness. So your race and your gender in conflict with each other. In what ways? (laughs) Um, In the ways that you are targeted... So when a woman is abused in a community, she is then told that she shouldn't bring these things up. This happened exactly in the Coptic community just last month. She shouldn't bring these things up because it creates disunion, right? Um, So like the Coptic community is already a fractured, marginalized community in the U.S. and in Egypt. Why would you bring up a domestic violent or a sexual abuse case? Why would you do that? That's divisive. So she's seen as kind of like a race or ethnic traitor, right? You're betraying your church. You're betraying your community. Um, And that's very important (laughs) um, because then she's stuck as a woman with less accessibility typically um, to financial independence. She's stuck to her children. She's stuck to um, whether or not she has family networks. She's stuck to uh, the social conditions that judge her. So as a woman, all of these things are beating up against you to force you into a very abusive relationship, to, to force you to stay in an abusive relationship. And then as a race, she's seen as a race traitor if she speaks up against black men. Um, And this is really important, right? Because then you see that she's being hit on both sides, right? So Coptic women face something very similar. Um, And because of intersectionality, we can actually find um, a type of sameness in our condition uh, between Coptic women and black women in that we are seen as race or ethnic traitors if we speak against our community or I say against because that's what the rhetoric is that's what the rhetoric is about us um is that we are against men if we report 
um, on abusive men, which again, men need to consider why that is. Um, And that we're also in a community that has socialized us to be silent, to be dependent, to um, not have these networks of um, addressing male violence. So intersectionality um, helps us see the sameness in these conditions and helps us realize that we are not race traitors um, if we report on um, these men who are abusive, right? Um, So we're not here to maintain the integrity of, you know, black men, Coptic men, Egyptian men. We're not here to maintain their status as... Um, You know, you even have a lot of men of color who presume (laughs) when they are abusive towards women who say things like um, you're just going to feed into the narrative that black men are violent or that, you know, Egyptian men, men of color are violent. And that's why you shouldn't report on me, which is really, really, really sick. Right. And this was also told to Sally last month when they were like, you're going to feed into this mentality in the U.S. that priests are abusive, just like in the uh, the Catholic Church, the the Coptic church is mirroring the Catholic church, so you shouldn't say anything. This is <laughs> insane rhetoric, really insane, um, to say that we should allow abuse because of an image, of, of, um, of an imagined image of ourselves. Um, so intersectionality helps us to see that sameness, to help us see, like, what is the rhetoric in other communities um, that are happening, right? So it helps us not see so much into difference, right? So someone may be a black woman. It may be different racially for me, um, class-wise, education-wise for me. Um, but we have similar struggles. Um, we we have those similar struggles in the U.S., not only because of our uh, sex, but also because of our race. So this is where intersectionality becomes very helpful with movements, right? To see the intersection that can breed um, a solidarity. The other thing that intersectionality helps us with is it helps us to understand conflicts of uh, subordination, which goes back um, to what I was saying uh, before this, um, is that it also helps us see why maybe... um, a Coptic woman may be in a room full of, you know, a lot of women and may not feel comfortable around all those women because they're not Coptic. So they don't understand um, where she's coming from. Or um, or a Coptic woman may feel uncomfortable with all that, you know, everyone surrounding her is Coptic and a woman. Um, but they all speak Arabic and she speaks English or they all speak English and she speaks Arabic, um, which is very common in diaspora. Um, and this helps us understand where a conflict of subordination or isolation may happen, right? Where someone you may be like, hey, you felt uncomfortable being in um, a group that's not your own. So I put you in a group of your own. But you may see that language may be a barrier. Class may be a barrier, right? So many low income women may not feel comfortable being around a space of upper class women, <laughs> even though, again, they're all women. Um, or someone who's Coptic may not feel comfortable being in a room of Protestants, um, who may or may not be saying unpleasant things about, um, other Christians. Um, so we see that these identities present themselves differently depending on, 
um, what is important at the time, whether that be someone who's an Arabic speaker, someone who's low income, someone who's a mother. Um, I get this a lot from a lot of people who are mothers who are like, I feel so tired and all the single women are like not even here, right? Like they're, they're on another planet, um, compared to like the tiredness that you feel as a parent. Um, so an identity that you may have that really shapes you that can come out at different times. Um, and this is very important because sometimes we see so much of, we shouldn't always strive towards sameness (laughs) all the time. Um, but instead we should look for compatibilities and affinities, right? Um, which is a lot more complex than just, oh, all of you are the same. You're all Coptic. So you must all agree with each other. You're all women. So you must have the same experiences. You're all, all, you know, English speakers. So you must all, um, speak English and relate to English in the same way. Um, so we see intersectionality helps us see the nuance, right? Um, so not all black people have the same experiences. I know, wild. Um, that they have differing experiences. We all have differing experiences um, based on multiple identities we hold. So intersectionality helps us to understand the sameness of our condition, but also the differences in our conflicts, right? So yeah, it's a very double-edged sword, intersectionality. Um, and the third thing it helps us do, um, kind of the action part is it helps us defend against, um, narratives of oppression. Um, so this idea, like I was mentioning that like, oh, this is very, very common. Um, so like he's being abusive towards you, um, because he works so hard, right? So he comes home and he has to let it out, right? Uh, we heard this during the Kevin Hart, um, cheating scandal, right? The reason he cheated on his wife, Kevin Hart, the comedian, the reason why he cheated on his wife was because he works, 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 works so hard and he comes home and she's pregnant. So he has to cheat on her, right? (laughs) Um, very ridiculous. Again, like when I say it, I I probably say it in a very sarcastic tone because to me, it's absolutely ridiculous that you would even make this claim. Um, But people say it with all seriousness, obviously. Um, They really do. There's like really a strong notion of like maintaining integrity. Like men can do no wrong. (laughs) Um, Like our community, our Coptic community can do no wrong. We are Christians. We can do no wrong. Um... And this is what intersectionality helps fight against, right? It sees, it really lays bare what the conflicts are. And it says, I need you to recognize that this is not okay. That you can harm someone who is also black. And you cannot say it's because, oh, I'm a black man, so I face racism. And this racism must, you know, all this pressure of racism must be put out on the black woman. No, that's not that's not an excuse. Um, and Kimberly Crenshaw in mapping the margins talks a lot about this, um, about this idea again of race being a race traitor being like, um, and the notions that like to oppose white supremacy, we have to stick together. That's not what solidarity is. Uh, and this is where I get to the point of what does intersectionality do for us? Because it lays bare 
the ideas of our sameness, it brings about a solidarity. Um, so I would love to see this of black women and Coptic women finding a solidarity, right? LBGTQI folks from Egypt, from the US, um, from Brazil, finding a solidarity um, because of the sameness of their conditions. That we are able to understand where there may be nuanced conflicts um, and being able to understand that we can find better affinities for that, right? Um, that everyone may have a differing affinity. Um, so an upper class woman may, you know, be best friends <laughs> with, um, this sounds so weird to say, but an upper class woman may be best friends with a lower class woman um, because they both speak uh, Arabic, right? And they're both immigrants. So they find a bond there. Um, so identities um, and intersectionality can help us see where identities can find affinities, right? Different solidarities with different folks, right? Um, or they may have come out of abusive relationships. They may be both divorced, um, which could be like seen as very shameful in their community. So they may find that type of solidarity with each other. So it doesn't have to be Again, just a simple pattern, right? If you're a woman, you have to get along with women. There can be other identities that bring us closer together than like kind of the bigger ones. Like our race brings us together. Our, um, you know, working class brings us together. Um, our gender and our sexual orientation all bring us together. Um, and intersectionality is great in the fact that it brings an intersection um, of multiple identities coming to the forefront to aid each other. Um, and this is really the goal with intersection. And that's why it's different than diversity. We're not looking for people to be different <laughs> from each other, but to find a sameness in their difference, right? So that when we are protesting for working class rights in Nashville, we also find upper class people there as well. Um, when we are protesting for Black Lives Matter um, anywhere, <laughs> um, we find white allies, we find Egyptian allies, we find um, Asian allies there as well. They find an intersectionality, they find a sameness and condition that they can hang on to. And that we are able to defend because we see this nuance in conflict and we see the sameness that we can defend against the narratives of oppression um, that continually within our communities um, can oppress us. Like you shouldn't say anything because he's a priest. You shouldn't say anything because it's shameful. You shouldn't say anything. Um, you shouldn't say anything because you shouldn't say anything. That I feel like that's a very uh, common thing that we hear as well. So to kind of head out um, on this podcast, I kind of want to read some quotes um, from Kimberly Crenshaw's um, essay or article, rather. It's quite long. Um, Mapping the margins, um, the intersections of race and gender. So I'm just going to read some for us to munch on. Um, so in her conclusions, she says, to say that a category such as race or gender is socially constructed is not to say that that category has no significance in our world. On the contrary, a large and continuing project for subordinated people and indeed one of the projects for which postmodern theories have been very helpful is thinking about the way in which power has clustered around certain categories and is exercised against others. Um, I wanted to read that quote just because I wanted to slightly say when I was talking about hierarchies, 
that it's very important um you know we have a conception of putting like the white male at the top of the ladder right he is the most unoppressed person who oppresses all um so we're going to put him at the top of the ladder and we're going to create a hierarchy of oppression instead of doing that instead of seeing a hierarchy we can see categories and we can see who is creating these categories right who created the term black who is creating these divisions between men and women? Who is creating um, these divisions between LBGTQI identity um, identities? Um, who is doing that? Because that ultimately is a person who has the power in our communities, and that power leads to um, a privilege. Um, let me see. Yeah. Um, moreover, it is important to note that identity continues to be the site of resistance for members of different subordinated groups. And I think that that's very beautiful to think about um, because I know I harp on identity politics all the time, but it is through identities that we find resistance. It is through identities that we change, that we are able um, to evolve out of, I don't want to say evolve, but to actually change what is happening around us. Rather, intersectionality provides a basis for reconceptualizing race as a coalition between men and women of color. So I really love that, right? So finding um, differences that actually bring us together. Um, so let me read that again. Rather, intersectionality provides a basis for reconceptualizing race as a coalition between men and women of color. Intersectionality may provide the means for dealing with other marginalizations as well. Again, like I'm saying, solidarity, um, which I, I really love that. Um, so it really is through difference that we find the mission, that we find the resistance we're looking for. With identity thus reconceptualized, um, through intersectionality, it may be easier to understand the need for and to summon the courage to challenge groups that are, after all, in one sense, home to us in the name of the parts of us that are not made at home. I love that. <laughs> um, she kind of concludes that essay with that quote. And yeah, I love the idea of challenging what is home to us. Um, and that's really what intersectionality brings us to, right? It nuances the conflict within ourselves. And it helps us see sameness, samenesses, I guess is the word here, um, of conditions with different groups. So I hope you all enjoyed this podcast. I really encourage episode. I really encourage you all to read Mapping the Margins by Kimberly Crenshaw. Or if you kind of want a reduced version of what she's been writing um you can google her name kimberly crenshaw um and her idea of intersectionality which is very important to discussing identities and also very important to our services um and social justice work so i'll see y'all next week um not next week next month um this has been lydia yusuf within mahabba center if you enjoyed this podcast episode I encourage you to go on our website and become a member or um, donate. Um, we really appreciate it and it really motivates us. Thank y'all. Bye.